0: So I have a question for you. It's for all y'all. Regardless of your age, your gender, your race, your employment, your location. If you're at school, if you're at work, if you're at home, wherever you are, this is applicable to every person in every place. Here it is. How do you feel about authority? Like, do you hear the word authority and you feel grateful that somebody else is dealing with the issue? So relieved that it's somebody else's responsibility above my pay grade, we like to say. Or maybe the mere mention of the word authority, you've already felt some rebellion rising in your chest. I confess, I resonate a little more with that feeling. I'm getting better about it but for a time, gosh, I sure did not like being told what I could do and what I could not do and where I could go and where I could not go. My family would probably tell you there's a little bit of that still continuing, but I am getting better. I I think I'm getting better. But in all sincerity, how do you feel about authority? Like what, what feelings does that word stir in you? And where does this right or this power come from? Who has legitimate authority in your life? Over whom do you have authority? Today we're going to read two stories about authority. We'll pick up from last week's sermon in Mark chapter 10 that Jesus was resolutely headed to Jerusalem, that he foretold for the third time of his suffering and death. That the way to glory goes through suffering, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as Chad explained, there is no real service, there's no real forgiveness without sacrifice. That whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else, as Jesus told his disciples who were vying for position with him, for some recognition, for some authority. So in Mark chapter 11, Jesus indeed enters Jerusalem with the waving of palms and the shouts of Hosanna. And the people expected a royal entry of a mighty king. But there's this Jesus riding in humbly on a colt A complex picture of authority and humility. I encourage you when you get home, read all of chapter 11 so that you see the Palm Sunday celebration of Jesus. So that you see his authority over a fruitless fig tree. To envision his authority to right wrongs where the money changers were behaving so unethically in his father's house and his desire that even the Gentiles might be blessed in the temple. To see the Messiah's correction of a sinful Israel who had not loved her neighbors. So our passage for today begins in Mark chapter 11 at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples are likely staying in Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem. It's within walking distance, and so each day they come back into town. So listen, that you may hear God's word. Again, they entered Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right to do them? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you'll answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John the Baptist's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Answer me. They talked it over amongst themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he'll ask why didn't we believe John? But do we dare say it was merely human? for they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ooh, so in the temple area, right where Jesus upset them the day before and stopped the unethical practices, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, AKA the scribes, and the elders, they all approach him. These three groups unite against Jesus. Imagine their perspective. They have a lot of authority. They have a lot to lose they'd likely be thinking, three years with this guy, all these so-called miracles, casting out demons, healing on the Sabbath. At least he stayed out there in Galilee. Like all of that is enough to give them pause. But now they're really concerned. He's in their town. And the ordinary people They're just gravitating to Jesus and they're saying that he's the Messiah, the anointed one. How can that be? Yesterday, all that business in their temple, stopping their kickbacks, their financial gain, that's the last straw. Who does he think he is? So they all come over, they confront Jesus and they demand to know, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right to do them? Do you see what Jesus does here? He answers a question with a question. And that was a common debate technique in that day. You could ask your rabbi, your teacher a question, and then he might turn around and ask you a question in return, kind of like Jesus does here. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? And then Jesus adds the imperative, answer me. But Jesus asks them an impossible question. Impossible not because they don't know the answer. They know the answer. But they cannot say the answer in this public arena. Not here. Not now. You see, the temple leaders intend to trap Jesus to get him to say he's operating on his own authority, then they could point out his lunacy. Or maybe they could even get Jesus in trouble with the Roman governor. Or to get Jesus to say he's operating on God's authority and then they'd say, God does not endorse someone who's breaking his law. And then they'd have Jesus on blasphemy, the penalty for which is death. But Jesus turns the questioning on them, how they feel about John the Baptist will expose how they feel about him. And back in Mark chapter one, back in the fall, when we were in chapter one, John clearly pointed out that Jesus is the coming one, the son of God. So the temple leaders huddle together to work through a response. No matter which way they answer, Jesus' point is going to be made, not their own. Hmm. On the one hand, there's option number one. Option number one says to accept that John's authority came from heaven, from God, uh, is to admit that John was a prophet, a true prophet. Oh, and then they figure Jesus is just going to ask them, then why didn't you listen to him and follow him? They would have to accept that Jesus comes from God, just as John had proclaimed. Hmm. Option number two there's option number two that says John just pretended, he acted out of his own human authority. Well, that would be to say John's cleansing was only human. And then they would court disfavor with these crowds in this public debate because they figured everybody would be all up in arms. They all know John so well as a prophet sent by God. Hmm. So they come up with option number three. They create this one themselves. Option number three, rather than commit in either direction, they profess ignorance. They turn to Jesus and reply, We don't know. So Jesus does not answer their question to entrap him. On the surface, this may appear to be like a shrewd ploy on Jesus' part, that he's demonstrating his authority or that his wits are sharper than theirs. But really, really, Jesus' question about John and baptism... It's meant to remind everyone of John's wilderness call to repentance, his offer of forgiveness, his pointing to Jesus as the coming one. It reminds people of Jesus' own baptism when his authority is established by the spirit descending from heaven and a voice saying, you are my son, my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Well, the Jewish leaders are not willing to let Jesus have authority over their lives, their domain, their temple. And rather than withdraw from this conflict, Jesus begins to speak in parables. In Mark chapter 12, we find our second story on authority. It begins at verse one. It's spoken to the same crowd and it kind of has the same message. So I'll read for you chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus began teaching them with stories. A man planted a vineyard, he built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up and sent him back empty handed. The owner sent another servant, but they insulted him, beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed and others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one left, his son whom he loved dearly. And the owner finally sent him thinking, surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? Jesus asked. I'll tell you he will come and kill the farmers and lease the vineyard to others didn't you ever read this in the scriptures and Jesus reads for them from Psalm 118 the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone this is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. As Easter people, we view this story through the lens of hindsight. We know how the passion story ends. But if we view this parable and really it's an allegory, If we view this through the lens of a first century Israelite, how does it look? In this parable, the agrarian setting, oh my goodness, that's just as old as time itself. And since the grapes were one of Israel's major crops, the vineyard would have been very familiar to a first century listener. The vineyard represents the people of God, And he is represented by the landowner who plants the vineyard, provides everything necessary to have a bountiful harvest. The tenants act like stewards and God or the landowner trusts the vineyard's care to them. They accept the task of producing the harvest. Just like the Jewish leaders were to care for God's people, and harvest their faith. A portion of the tenant's harvest was due to the landowner. It's a payment for renting his land. It's like a lease. And the farmers embezzled it and they kept it for their own just as the Jewish leaders kept Israel for their own. They would not acknowledge God's authority in their lives, in their whole lives. In this parable, the servants that the landowner sends to speak to them, to the tenants, those servants represent the Old Testament prophets. They were often called servants and they were sent by God to speak wisdom, to announce cautions, but they were often ignored. And the landowner's son, he represents Jesus. The landowner sends his beloved son to obtain his rightful rent payments. The son carries the landlord's authority just like Jesus carries God's authority. And the tenants should respect the landowner's son. And the Jewish leaders should respect Jesus. But they don't. It's important for us to understand today how these first century tenant farmers thought that they'd inherit the land. That part might sound kind of strange to us today, but in that culture, the son arriving instead of the father, that might at first glance indicate that the owner had died. And if that were the case, and if the son was out of the picture, then by law, a piece of ownerless land could be retained by those who are already present. They're already working the vineyard. And the tenant farmers know this property law. Clearly, they're not bothered by that little law about not committing murder. They want to obtain the land for themselves. And in order for the Jewish people the leaders there to keep Israel and the temple all for themselves, they're gonna have to get rid of the sun. Well, when the landowners hear this, sorry, yeah, when the landowner hears this, he hears about the traitorous behavior of his tenant farmers. He'll come, he'll destroy them, and he'll give the land to others who'll take better care. Oh, For the owner to appear like this after this heinous crime, that would shatter the tenant's illusion that they're gonna be in control, that they're gonna have all the authority. But here's an interesting point. Property law then stated that the owner could even enlist the aid of the government to assist him in forcing the tenants off his land. Whoa, they would be banished far away from the vineyard, God's people, far away from the landowner, God. This was the landowner's right. This was his power. This was his authority in that day. The leading priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, they gather the role they play in this story. They know that they're the evil tenants who kill the servants and the heir to the estate. The Jewish leaders certainly don't like this. The picture of Jesus' authority as the son representing the father. Oh, and from their point of view, this teaching must be stopped. But there are all these people, these crowds. They can't do it here. They could do nothing. So they leave Jesus alone for now. And they go away furious. The leaders of Israel have rejected God's messengers, his prophets. They have rejected his beloved son. They have failed to recognize his authority to love Israel's neighbors, to repent from their sins, to receive forgiveness. As Easter people, we might wonder why anybody would fail to receive forgiveness. Who doesn't want to be forgiven? But maybe you don't feel worthy of God's forgiveness. I've certainly felt that way. I've preached that from right here. Or maybe you don't see your sin or feel like there's anything needing forgiveness. And I've certainly felt that way. And I've asked God to search me and know me and to show me in my heart. And I'm never stronger than when the Lord uses my weakness to work out his best. As Easter people, we can see how Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter five, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, you know, the real confrontation in these passages—it's about authority in here, in our hearts. There's a decision for us to make daily, knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, knowing that He indeed is the humble servant who has come to give His life as a ransom for many. The real sacrifice. For forgiveness, the love offering for your very life. Knowing this, what will you do? What will you do with the authority you have? With humility, how will you love and care for God's people? And what will you do with the authority other have, others have over you? Will you recognize our Savior's right to ask you to deny yourself, take up the cross? Will you identify his silence where he does not command you to love him, but he desires your heart, your whole heart? Every day, ask yourself if you're willing to give Jesus every corner of your life. I ask that one a lot myself. You know, not just the good stuff where it's easy to respect his authority. I mean, every corner. Before you answer that, give some time this week to think about that. Think about some of those corners, some parts of our lives where we might not want the savior to come in Because I'll tell you, he's already aware. He already knows whether we'd have him go there or not. This week, pray and ask him to meet you in just one of those corners that you're willing to give that to him. And maybe when you feel a little more comfortable, when you're ready sometime, ask him to meet you in all of those places. Because I'm telling you, he loves you no matter what. So why not let our Lord have that authority in your life? Let him help you clean out some of those corners. Think and pray about how you feel about authority. Who has legitimate authority in your life? I pray that you will let that authority be your humble savior who lived and died for you. Amen? Amen. Please pray with me. Father God, we want to rest in your grace and your mercy. We want to see Jesus. We want to feel the comfort of your Holy Spirit. We pray your blessings. Amen.